Hey guys, welcome to episode 119 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we've been releasing episodes like it's our job lately. I actually have been loving it. I well, I wish it was our job. That would be... Well, it is our job. Amazing. A second job, though. Yeah, like if it was our only job, this would be my dream. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> In three weeks, we've done five episodes. That's pretty crazy. I, I feel very accomplished. It's a good way to start the year. I like it. So we've had a lot of amazingly generous angels join our Patreon this month. And we will continue to thank them at the end of every episode like we always do. So from when we record this episode, we have our list of new Patreon supporters. I'm sure there's going to be more. So if I miss anyone, it'll be on the next episode. But we just want to say how grateful we are for you. So if you're interested in hearing the 60 plus bonus episodes we have available on Patreon, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash true crime couple. And if you can't do that, we would encourage you to always check out our sponsors and use our codes to do so because that really helps the podcast more than you know with our like retention of sponsors. And last but certainly not least, because this helps us big time as well, ratings. So we would really appreciate it if you left a review for us on whichever podcast platform you use. It's just really so helpful for us to like kind of be up there in the true crime charts. It's such a saturated, you know, place, but we can get up on the charts if we have those amazing reviews and and the reviews are so sweet and they're so nice and they really sometimes when we're in our like podcast lows, that's what like helps us be like, no, okay, people people do like us, so we can keep going. Thank you for all of your reviews and thank you for everything even if you're just listening. We really appreciate you. And as this year comes to an end, we just really do want to tell you how grateful we are for our listenership. We love doing the podcast because it's made our relationship better and we get to bring you crazy true crime stories that you might have never heard of before. And that's what I like doing the best. So, John, you're ready for this one? I'm ready. Let's do it. In 1983, tragedy struck in East Texas. As the Friday night lights crowd cheered on their beloved hometown football team, five employees of a local fast food restaurant were being gunned down in an isolated oil field. Their murders would shake the town of Kilgore, Texas to the core. The five families of the victims, along with the Kilgore Police Department, the Texas Rangers, and the FBI, would search for justice for 20 years. But still... Even after all of that work, there are more questions than answers. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In Texas, high school football is a religion, preached about at dining room tables, coffee shops, and in locker rooms. And on every Friday night from August through December, if you're lucky enough to get that far, it is worship beneath the stadium lights. And that is why on Friday, September 23, 1983, the local Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant in Kilgore, Texas was a madhouse. Families were trying to get quick meals so they could head out to the game. 
Kilgore is located in East Texas, which is the location of the Great Oil Boom. Kilgore could once brag that it had more oil wells in their town than any other location in the world. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So it's also the location of Kilgore College. Um, Back in 1983, it was known as Kilgore Junior College. And that made the population of the town really interesting because you had this hard working class family surrounded by college kids and apartments. So as you can imagine, they are both looking to blow off steam, albeit for very different reasons. It's cool when a whole town like comes together like that, and and they all enjoy very similar things like football, for example. You know, for example. Well, like football, but also like going to bars and like blowing off steam after like a hard work day or like just a random Friday for college kids. Like, or KFC too. So it looks like they'll go to KFC. They do. <laughs> KFC's good. It's so good. And you know what could go wrong here? You just have. These two groups of people that kind of never would merge, merged in Kilgore, Texas. And that's what makes it kind of such a unique situation there in in the 80s. Yeah, it's definitely an experience, I'm sure. So Kimberly Tyler was working at the KFC that night. She had been scheduled to leave around 9.30 p.m. As her shift came to a close, she made a desperate call to her mother, Mary Tyler who was the assistant manager of the store. The 17-year-old girl had gotten herself into a bit of trouble that past year, but her mother had advocated for her to be hired at the restaurant. She thought that the responsibility would be good for her daughter, and for the most part, she was doing really well at the job. But it was Friday in East Texas during football season, and Kimberly had parties to go to. There was one problem, though. Someone had forgotten to deposit the money in the cash register at the bank, so she would be unable to close, and she really didn't want to stay past her shift because she had somewhere to get to. As her coworker, 39-year-old's mother of three, Opie Hughes, took orders next to her, Kimberly picked up the store phone. Hey, Mama, she said. There's too much money in the register. Someone forgot to go to the bank. I have a party I have to get to. Are you still coming to close? On the other end of the conversation, Kimberly's mother must have said yes because the girl seemed happy and hung up the phone. Kimberly left the store around 9.45 p.m. that night and she went home to kind of get ready to go back out. Okay. And anyone who's ever worked at a fast food place knows that it takes a long time to get that grease smell out, so... She had her work ahead of her. Where did you work again? At Burger King. Okay. Did you like it there? Oh, it was great. Hey, you know, it is what it is. I was 14. I needed a job. Hey, listen. No no hate. No hate. I I worked at a Chinese restaurant, so, you know. Yeah, when you work at, like, a food place, it does take a long time to get the food smell out. But there is something, like, particular about, like, a fried smell, like, like that smell never came out of the clothes I had to wear to work. Oh yeah, no. E- even for me, it was so the same. Way. I mean, I'm sure it's very similar. I mean, every time they're like, you know, frying up the egg rolls or whatever, you know, you can't yeah. really get rid of that smell. The onion rings were just like into the fabric of my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So at around 10.30 p.m., Kimberly was driving past the KFC on the way to go to the party that she was supposed to be at. But something made her do a double take. Her mother's car was still in the parking lot. By now, the restaurant should be closed up and everyone should be gone. So why was her mother still there? So she turned around and parked in the lot reserved for the KFC and she went to the front door. She could see that nobody was inside. The door was locked, but what was weird was the set of keys used to lock the door was still in the, the door. So like on the outside, they were on the inside. Oh, they locked from the inside. Yeah. Okay. So that was odd because obviously usually don't leave the keys in the door. So she went around to the back of the building where she saw that the back door to the restaurant had been left ajar and an uneasy feeling just washed over her. As soon as she walked into the back door, she saw that the garbage that should have been taken out was kind of laying on its side next to the back door. She kind of had to step over it. And then her heart almost stopped. There was blood and a good amount of it dripped all over the floors in the back of the restaurant. She was confused because 45 minutes ago, when she left, everything had been fine. She thought that maybe someone had cut themselves and they went to the hospital and that's maybe why the store was shut down so quick and there were still cars in the lot. Like maybe because her mother was the assistant manager, she went with them to the hospital. Okay. I mean, that's a good thought process. Yeah. But then that kind of doesn't make sense because there were two other people working in the store. So the one person would have left. I don't know. She was like, this situation just feels wrong. So she called her stepfather. Yeah. Like in the moment, you're not thinking. A crime. A crime. Yeah. Like you're not. You're thinking, okay, maybe something bad happened. Someone had to be, you know, escorted or or, or to the hospital or whatever, like she did do. So, yeah, it's that's interesting. I will tell you, though, um, I want to make note of it because it's interesting. What she kind of walked through by going through the back door and the garbage being tipped over, it seems to me that that was the point of entry, a a possibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, um, that's how they gain entry inside. Okay. So maybe they they were finished or or they were told to lock the door. They were finishing up and someone just came in. Yeah. It's weird how, like, when you – like, I'm picturing this in my mind, and that's most likely how it, like – They gained entry. Yeah. From the back door there. And that's interesting because I think Kimberly's thought process is kind of what a normal person's would be of, oh, maybe someone just cut themselves because your mind doesn't immediately go to like horrific murder. I mean, now it does because of all we're so immersed in our true crime worlds. But in 1983, there was no dateline kind of pushing you forward thinking those things. It's true. So Kimberly asked her stepfather if by any chance her mother was home. But he told her that she was not. She explained everything that she saw at the KFC. And she grew very concerned because kind of as you're telling it to someone else, you're like, wow, this is actually kind of really bad. He told her that he was going to come down. But in the meantime, she should call some hospitals to see if maybe someone did cut themselves and maybe Mary had just gone with them. So Kimberly did just that, but with no luck. No one that was working that day had been admitted into any of the surrounding hospitals. Kimberly knew that with her mother closing the store, there had been Opie Hughes, 
um, and she was the one who was working the front of the store, like, you know, like taking orders and things like that. And then in the back, the cook was 20-year-old Joey Johnson. And where could they have both gone? Kimberly's stepfather got to the scene, and the two walked all about the restaurant searching for clues as to what could have happened. But they found none. And this is kind of like bad because they didn't realize it was a crime scene, but they kind of have walked through an ent- entire crime scene. I mean, that's pretty bad. Yeah. So finally, they agreed that they had to call the police. This was seeming like it was a robbery more and more as time went on. The Kilgore police officers arrived at the KFC at 11.33 p.m. It was clear to them that this was no accident. It was a crime scene. So they asked Kimberly and her stepfather to leave the building, and they called for backup, detectives, and crime scene analysts. Right away, there was a lot of troubling details about this case for detectives. First, what could have happened to leave so much blood at the scene? Second, where had the three people gone that had been working? If it was a robbery, why would they take witnesses with them unless they wanted to hurt them? It appeared that most of the injuries that took place during the struggle had begun at the cash register. The register was open and emptied. A pool of blood lay on the floor in front of the register. It appears that something hard hit the wall to the left of the register. Like if you're looking at the register, the wall to the left was hit hard. Like there was an indentation, kind of the height of a person. So they thought like maybe someone's head was slammed into the wall. Oh, wow. Okay. From the blood on the floor of the register, it looked like the person walked from the register to the back of the restaurant past the cooking area and into the back office. So the blood trail is kind of like leading them to the back office where they find a filing cabinet was left open and blood had dripped all over the files inside. Kimberly would later confirm that the filing cabinet that was opened was where they kept petty cash. And it was usually about like $1,500 in petty cash that was there. And um, also where her mother probably most likely kept the $2,000 overflow that was to be deposited at the bank the next morning. Okay. Do you think this, uh, whoever did this, do you think they might have knew like where to go to look for? Like, Well, I think that based on the fact, from what the detectives are saying, if the blood pool is at the register, someone was hit at the register and then taken to the back. So I think that, that the person asked them to, Take me to the rest of the money. Yeah, you might be right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it might be. You think it could be more than one person? Well, I mean, that's what detectives are thinking here because you're saying that you got three people to not only comply but then go with you somewhere else to a second location. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I don't. I don't think it's one person. It has to be more yeah. to corral those people. Yeah. Even with a gun, I don't know. I always think that. I mean, yeah, gun scare, you don't want to get shot, but to be let off somewhere else where you don't know where you're going. Right. Three people could probably overpower one person with a gun. Yeah, of course. And I think it's also weird, not normal for a robbery to take the the witnesses with you. That's a little strange. Very strange. Because there were three missing persons and a crime scene to analyze, 
Kilgore police broke up into two separate entities. All patrolmen were called on duty to search the entire town, roadways, and the surrounding towns to see if there were any possible signs of the three missing employees. The detectives stayed behind, and with the help of one crime scene tech, they processed the scene as best as they could. Now, I'm not saying that this is anyone's fault. It's normal when it comes to discovering. But the investigators had to take into account that after the crime had occurred, Mary Tyler's daughter, Kimberly, and her husband walked through the scene. So they needed now to keep everyone out as much as possible and to process the scene before it was further contaminated in any way. Hundreds of pictures were taken of the scene that day. And every time there was a blood drop, and there were so many blood drops, they took a sample of it and they bagged it as evidence. So there were hundreds of blood samples that they took from the scene. I mean, that's really good. I mean, at least they recognized the fact that the crime scene had to be preserved at all costs. They did. And they processed the scene really well. There's just one horrific thing that happened here. Uh Uh-oh. What happened? Well, it's 1983. So, you know, they were taking pictures with the camera and then they had to take the pictures to be developed. And when the detective who was working the case went to go pick up the developed pictures, there was a problem with the development of the film. And of the hundreds of pictures that were taken, only 25 were developed. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, see, that sucks. Well, you know what? The intention was there to do the best they could to, you know, make sure that that scene wasn't that tampered with. It's really all they could do. That's all they could do. Oh, man. So at around 12.30 a.m., a tip came in to the Kilgore police station. Welcome to a small town, guys. Before the crime has even been made public, tips are coming in. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So this person said that when they had been driving past the KFC at around 10 p.m., they saw a white van that they had never seen before parked behind the KFC. Interesting. So the patrolmen that were out searching for the victims, they were made aware to be on the lookout for not just the three victims, but also a white van now. So, I mean, that was kind of good for patrolmen because they felt like they were kind of on this like search for nothing. Like, what am I looking for? And now they kind of had something in their mind to search for. So it really helped them with the investigation. Yeah. While the main detective that had been assigned the case was working in the restaurant, taking all the pictures that end up not getting developed, a call came in for him to return to the station. At first, he told dispatch that he was busy and that he didn't want to go back to the station. But the person on the other end said, you're really going to want to hear what this person has to say. So the person dispatch was talking about was 18-year-old Kilgore Junior College freshman Lana Maxwell. A very worried and confused Lana Maxwell met the detective as soon as he walked through the doors of the station. She was there with another male that appeared to be the same age as she was and was later identified as her roommate. She said that she and her roommate came to report their third roommate, her husband, David Maxwell, missing. Okay. So is that, I'm guessing that would be one of the people that was was in the KFC. No. No. The the three people in the KFC are Mary Tyler, the assistant manager, Opie Hughes, who was working the front 
She was 39 years old. She's a mother of three. And Joey Johnson, the 20-year-old cook. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so they were all employees. A, yeah. Okay. They were all employees. This is a fourth person, David Maxwell. Gotcha. Lana said that David had been sharing a motorcycle with his frat brother because what had happened was the couple, their set of keys that they had for the car, they lost it. So they were waiting to get that set of keys replaced. So as a favor, David's frat brother said, you know, I'll let you borrow my bike. And her husband was supposed to have dropped the motorcycle off um, to his friend because his friend had to drive home from work there. Like they were going to come back together because they lived in the same like kind of apartment complex. And she said, maybe if anything, they were going to go out and grab a beer together. When David went to basically go pick up his friend with his friend's motorcycle. Confused, the detective wondered why he'd been brought back for this. Because it seemed like this is something another detective could have taken on. But then he remembered that in the parking lot of the KFC, there had been a motorcycle. Uh-oh. I would, first of all, I would, I would never let anyone use my car or motorcycle but this is his like this is a nice favor for a friend, somebody he considered a brother. So, I mean, I guess. Now, to confirm, the detective asked Lana Maxwell who her husband's frat brother friend was. Joey Johnson. Oh, okay. He had gone down to the KFC to drop off the bike and hang out there until Joey got off of work and then him and Joey were going to Maybe stop and get a beer, but then ride back to the apartment together. Now, David, this is interesting, too. David Maxwell also worked at that KFC, but he wasn't scheduled to work that night. So he was an employee, but he wasn't working that night. So now there's a potential fourth victim in this robbery gone bad. This this is crazy. And they're all it's crazy how they, there's so much blood everywhere. But there's no bodies of these of these victims. They've been taken. Now that's crazy. But Lana's not done with her story. Okay. She said that she knew another one of Joey and David's frat brothers was going to be stopping by the KFC to hang out with them a bit before Joey's shift ended. He was 19-year-old Monty Landers. Now that made five. Five. People were missing. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, for five people to just to just go missing, to be taken yeah. after this robbery, I mean, this is nuts. And what are the chances, you know, like the chances of David Maxwell and Monty Landers just being there? It's just like fate that they were there during that time. Like it's it's uh, the circumstances are heartbreaking. But now, instead of looking for three victims, Police are looking for five victims. Now, seeing the disbelief on the detective's face did little to calm down Lana Maxwell. She was very worried. She looked at the detective and said, David's okay, don't you think? He has to be. She reached down and touched her stomach. We're having a baby, she said. Aw, that must be hard. Yeah. So the race was on to find these five people. 
Law enforcement officers prayed that they had just been taken to a second location and let go. But they had never seen anything like this in all of their careers. So they really couldn't even begin to guess what happened to them. About four hours into the search, the chief of police in Kilgore knew that he needed more assistance in this case. So he reached out to the Texas Rangers to help search. After about an hour of them joining the team, a call came into 911. A very distraught oiled field worker came across a grisly site on his way to work. Bodies had been found. Oh, damn. At an oil lease off of Walker King Road in Rusk County, about 14 miles away from where the KFC was, a mass grave was found. Four bodies laid face down, their bottom halves in the gravel roadway and the top halves in the grass. They had their hands placed beneath their heads as if they were using them for pillows. It would later be determined that the first body was that of Monty Landers, a 19-year-old freshman at Kilgore Junior College. Monty was a wonderful son and brother. He had just pledged the Phi Theta Omega fraternity that Joey and David were a part of, and the two took a strong liking to the funny young man. Later, Monty's sister will say in interviews that her brother had hated watching scary movies, and he refused to do so. And she just hated the fact that the last moments of his life were worse than any movie they could have watched together. Monty had been shot two times. The body next to him was his frat brother, David Maxwell. Maxwell was so excited at the prospect of being a father that he began taking his classes more seriously. He gave up his spot as president of the fraternity, and he married Lana. They got an apartment together to live in, and they were excited to start their family. He loved spending time with his brothers, but he relished the time alone he had with Lana talking about the amazing things their families were going to have. David also had been shot two times. Both were killed instantly. On the right side of David was Mary Tyler, the assistant manager and mother to five children and stepchildren she shared with her husband. Mary was a kind woman with a beautiful smile and she'd been shot twice in the back as well. Next to her was her co-worker, Joey Johnson. Joey was a three-sport athlete and the top of his class when he was in high school, and it seemed as if he was continuing that trend in college. Everyone who knew him said he was a bright young man and had an even brighter future. Joey'd been shot three times, the gravel beneath the feet of Mary and Joey showed that they had struggled to get up and out of their positions. Detectives theorized later that whoever shot the four must have started with Monty and David, and that's why there didn't seem to be any like resistance in the gravel around them. But then as they worked their way over, Mary and Joey had tried to get up. So they theorized that maybe that's why Joey was shot three times and everyone was shot twice because maybe he was almost there. He was almost up and his body was kind of more splayed out. There was no hands under his head. Okay. Almost like he was trying to get 
uh, get away or yeah yeah but that was four five people were missing where was opie hughes detectives knew for a fact she had been there why wasn't she with the rest of the group well it wouldn't take long for them to find her about 120 feet from where the four bodies were on the other side of the dirt road Detectives found the body of Opie Hughes. She was not laying peacefully on her stomach with her hands beneath her head. Located just off of the roadway, she was in a fetal position. She'd been shot twice, but it appeared she had put up a fight. In one hand, she had gravel and grass, and in the other hand, she had a fistful of hair her own hair. Now, I know this seems unusual, but this is something that we've actually seen before a lot of times in doing the podcast. It happens when someone's being dragged by their hair and they're trying to get their attacker's hands out of their hair. So they wind up grabbing their own hair in the process. I mean, that that's always made sense to me. Yeah. Because it's just a, it's like a reactionary response. To try and save yourself. Exactly. So it was clear that Opie had fought with her attacker. Maybe this was why she was separated from the other four. They, they really didn't know. They were still unclear about this detail. Another detail about the bodies was that they were all stripped of their jewelry. So their jewelry had been taken from them and their pockets had all been turned outside, inside out. So they had been robbed yeah. again. That's pretty crazy. I mean, if you think about the uh, the events right now, as as you're telling them, I mean it's pretty crazy. I mean I've never seen something like this where all these people are at one location. Someone comes in, you know, whatever. Uh, give me the money. I want all the money in here, and then they take everyone, put them in a vehicle, drive and for fourteen drive, miles, yeah, and drive far out and pretty much execute them all in the same spot. I don't understand this either. I feel like if your intentions were to murder these five people, why not just do so in the in the restaurant? Yeah, like I don't understand like why go far out to do that. I'm just thinking it could it be possible that one of them, the one uh, the the one person that dropped the bike off, could it be possible that maybe he was in there before the drop off and that startled this guy and then he just rounded everybody up and put them in the van? Um, or car or whatever it was. I do think that maybe if this was a planned robbery, because it's obvious based on the missing jewelry, the outturned pockets, all the money missing from the KFC, that the motive for these murders is robbery. And if that was the intention and this was something that was planned out, the the person or persons who planned this robbery probably only thought three people were going to be in the KFC. And like you said, maybe they were shocked to find five people there. They panicked and they kind of deviated from their plan. So that's why it doesn't make sense. It's possible because, like you said, he that one kid wasn't even supposed to be there. Monty wasn't Landers. His, it wasn't his shift. So oh, I David think, Maxwell. It wasn't David Maxwell's shift and Monty Landers just went there to hang out. Right. So I think that that might have thrown him or them off of their original plan. Right. And then they just said, you know, you know, probably pointed a gun and said everybody in the van. And that was how they were able to do that. It could also be that the killers were kind of 
trying to think about what they want to do. Do we want to let these people go or do we want to kill them? So to kind of burn that time and think about it or talk through it, if it's more than one person, did they say get in the car? And then if it really was that white van, they would say like, okay, are we going to kill these people? Are we going to let them go? Like, I think taking them from the scene allowed them to have more time to think. I don't know. It's, it's very strange. Yeah, it is. And the other thing I want to say is, I mean, I know people have done and killed over less, but think about it. To take, what, what did he get? $3,500 maybe? Yeah. $3,500 and now you're taking five people and execute five people for $3,500? Well, they're not thinking that way. I know. I know. It's they're just... thinking, I don't want to get caught. <laughs> right. So these people have... Maybe they've all seen their face. Yeah. I mean, it is true. I mean, that would be the best option to take these people out. Yeah. So now was the hard part. Detectives began making the rounds to tell the families that the five victims that they'd been looking for were all found dead. I have to tell you that devastation does not even begin to describe this. Three young men in the prime of their lives and two lovely, devoted mothers. All were taken from their families. Monty Lander's family was the last to be told, and they heard about a Monty Lander's being found dead in a connection with a robbery at KFC on the radio before police even got to the house. And his mother was in denial that it could be her Monty. So she kept saying, like, it has to be another Monty. It has to be somebody else. But that was until his father went down to the morgue to identify his son's body. And only then did the gravity of their loss begin to sink in for Monty Lander's parents. When Joey Johnson's girlfriend, she's actually the author of a folded love note that was found at the, on the floor of the restaurant. There, when they were collecting evidence, they found this folded piece of paper and they thought it could be you know, something of significance. So they opened it up and it was actually a note that Joey's girlfriend had just written to him that day. So she was the one who wrote this note. She found out at the um, police station because she heard about this robbery at the KFC. She went to the police station and that's when detectives did inform her that Joey Johnson was dead. She actually ran out and had a breakdown in the streets outside of the Kilgore police station. Jack Hughes, who was Opie's husband for 20 years, he was a long-haul truck driver. And he was supposed to be coming home that Saturday. So he did speak to his wife the Friday, the Friday of the murders, right before her shift. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll be coming home tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. And it, his three daughters got in touch with him when he stopped at, you know, kind of where he stopped to like sleep before he headed home and they said mom's missing. So he rushed home and instead of being greeted by his wife, who he adored, his three daughters were sobbing in the living room and they said mom's missing. They don't know where she is. Everyone's missing from the KFC. And in a later interview, he would say that that morning when a police car with flashing lights came down his driveway that, like, he knew that she'd been murdered. It's kind of crazy when people get that feeling, that like that yeah. gut feeling that something's not right. It's really sad. 
Yeah, he said that he stood there as strong as he could for his daughters. As the detective informed him that the life he had planned with the woman he loved was destroyed. And it's true that five families had been shattered. And the Kilgore Police Department had a lot of work to do to find out who did this. Oh, yeah, they definitely do. I mean, you have technically you have two crime scenes that both can give you information. I mean, the KFC and then also on this road with the gravel, with the grass and everything. So you have two locations that you have to really look at. Soon after the bodies were found, a local woman came forward and stated that she had been at the KFC the night of the robbery. And she was standing online about to place her order when a young girl who clearly worked at the store because she had the uniform on, picked up a phone and made a phone call. Remember this phone call? Kimberly Tyler made it to her mother. Oh, right. Yes. She said that the girl had been loud and everyone in line heard what she was saying about there being too much money in the register. She remembered the whole thing because she remembered saying to herself, If I were her, I wouldn't have had that conversation so loud, especially so close to closing time. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) probably not a good idea. So she was asked if she remembered seeing anything suspicious. Was anyone listening in? And she said, yes, everyone in this store was kind of listening into that phone conversation. So then she was asked, was anyone there that you didn't recognize or something that seemed suspicious or a little bit off to you. And she said, yeah, for a short while, like there was a man behind her and he obviously overheard the phone conversation as well. And then a second man came in for a while. The two kind of whispered to each other. And then the fur, the man that came in, the second man, he left again. So it was kind of weird. She thought that he came in to get in line with the other guy and then left. So she gave a description to detectives of what these two men looked like. And that was hard, too, because the description was so vague. Like, she wasn't really thinking about anything. But now police are thinking maybe someone in that restaurant overheard that conversation and was like, wow, let's take advantage of this. Right. But then that would indicate that it's not it wasn't something that was planned for a while or anything. It was kind of... Um, a spur-of-the-moment type of robbery then. No, and that explains why it's a little bit of a hot mess. Also, that also means that it has to be someone within the town of Kilgore because, think about it, if it was a spur-of-the-moment thing, you would have to be living in the area to commit the crime so quickly. Like, you're not just going to, you know, what do you have? Well, if you're already there and it's within minutes of closing time, this was at 9.30. uh, Maybe. Plus, we were talking about Texas and, like, everybody in Texas, you know, they have guns in Texas, right? I mean, yes, I don't they know. do. I mean, that, you know, not not to you know stereotype, but I'm just saying, like, everyone has guns in Texas. So, well, the that's thing here too is that we have to remember the marketing of these fast food chains, and the, if you look at a fast food location, it's always going to be by a major highway, so it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in Kilgore, but someone who is stopping through. That's true too, actually. So it took detectives one week with the help of metal detectors to find all of the bullets and shell casings that had been shot off in that dirt road that night. Eleven in total. 
And that makes sense because it was two per person except Joey, who had three shots. So based on the bullets and casings found, it appeared that two, possibly three guns have been used that night. So this kind of corroborated the theory that more than one person had to have committed this crime. It was hard to believe that one person could corral, even with a gun, and abduct five people. So they're thinking two to three people were involved in this case. Sounds about right, to be honest. The autopsy of the five showed that there were no drugs or alcohol in their system. They had all died from gunshot wounds. It appeared that Mary Tyler had been struck on the right side of her mouth with a blunt object, and this caused a significant cut that would have caused the amount of blood loss that they saw, like kind of at the base of the register. And that made detectives think, okay, maybe while she was standing at the register, she was hit with the butt of a gun, which caused her head to bounce off of the wall next to her. And that accounts for the hole in the wall or the The indentation. Yes. Yeah. Then one clue had been found while undressing Joey Johnson to prepare him for his autopsy. Okay. A ripped fingernail was stuck in the waistband of his jeans. A ripped fingernail? Yes. A pretty significant sized fingernail. Okay. So the medical examiner checked the fingernails of all of the victims and noted that none of them were torn. This could be the fingernail of one of the attackers. So in order to get some help with the case, because really at this point they didn't have anything, detectives opened a hotline for citizens to report anything that they heard or could possibly know about the crime. One lead came in that was interesting for them. The tip said that the word on the street was that the boys, Joey, David, and Monty, and potentially their other frat brothers, bought a meth recipe from a local drug kingpin for $20,000. And that the reason the murder robbery happened was because they wanted the recipe back. This local kingpin they were talking about was Jimmy Mankins Jr. He's the son of a Texas congressman. The police asked around about Mankins and his whereabouts on the day and night of the murder. They learned from a local informant that the night of the murder, Mankins actually borrowed a 38 pistol from someone and returned it a few days later. And that was kind of one of the shell casings they found at the scene. This piqued their interest, so they wanted to bring him in for questioning. And this is on October 1st, eight days after the murder. The first thing they did, as they did with all potential suspects, was look at his hands. The unofficial like line of this investigation um, or this new task force that was actually comprised of both the Kilgore Police Department and the Texas Rangers was find the man with the ripped fingernail and we'll find our guy. So on Mankin's right hand, his middle finger had been ripped beyond the nail bed. And all of his other fingernails, because I've seen the picture, it's literally disgusting. All of his other fingernails were long and dirty. Okay. So it's a possibility that that could be his fingernail. Yes. Hmm. So they photographed his right hand and made a note about the rip. He said he didn't remember how it happened. But he provided an alibi for the night of the murders 
They told him that they were definitely going to look into it. But other than the ripped fingernail, they really didn't have anything more to hold him on. So they had to let him go. Mankin's interview with the Kilgore Task Force piqued the interest of the FBI, who contacted them. The FBI had been trying to build a case against Mankins and his massive drug operation, specifically meth, for quite some time. The FBI requested to join the task force as they looked into Mankins because it could potentially help them with their case. But at this point, the investigators that were looking into the murders were keeping their options open. They still wanted to look through the tip line. They still wanted to do their investigation. They didn't want to narrow in on this one person. So someone called the tip line and gave another tip that was seemed really reliable. They said that they knew the three men that had committed the robbery and murders. The men's names were Romeo Pinkerton, Darnell Hartsfield, and Elton Winston. Pinkerton and Hartsfield were cousins, and the person that gave them the tip was reliable, so the task force chose to temporarily switch directions. All three men are convicted drug dealers, and two of the three had also been charged with burglary in the past. Pinkerton also matched the physical description that the woman who was waiting online at the KFC that night gave to detectives. He was African-American, he had deep pockmarks in his face, and the other man was bearded and had a mustache. So it matched the two men. Hartsfield and Pinkerton. Okay. The men also have been known to be dr- to drive a white van. It was actually a family member's white van, but they borrowed it all the time. See, you don't let people borrow your things. I know. This is <laughs> it's a trend. However, one of the men had a really strong alibi. He had been in the state penitentiary doing time while the ro- robbery and murder took place. Okay. So that, that doesn't work then? No. He was released two days after the crime had been committed. That's interesting. Winston and Hartsfield, they also had alibis. But theirs was a little shaky. They said they'd been working, which seems like a really good alibi, right? Like, But their job isn't something you clock in and out for. They were actually... Uh, transporting prostitutes between Longview and Tyler. Oh, great. Yeah, so that's what they were busy doing. Um, Although this alibi is shaky at best, prison records don't lie. So the investigators kind of take their focus from these three men and put their focus back in Jimmy Mankins. Was probably the smarter thing to do. Yeah. Although those working the case believed that Mankins was responsible for the murders, Mankins himself was also going around telling people that he did it. What? Yeah, I mean, this is like a drug kingpin. He's threatening people, He's but he's threatening people by saying, I killed those five people. You think I won't kill you? He was saying things like that. That's really odd. The, another thing I want to say, though, too, like if he's like this big kingpin, right? Yeah. I feel like it would be really dumb to like rob that place 
for a couple like for like three thousand dollars. But they're saying that's not the motive. Right. Well, that's what I'm trying to get at here. Like, so that was on top of why they were there. But even the motive sounds a little off. Like, they bought a recipe to cook meth, and then he wants it back. I don't know. It just seems weird. I get it. It it doesn't seem. It does seem strange because it's like, well, they know it. So, like, what is it? What is the informant like? Not informant, but the person that gave a tip. Like, what are they trying to say? Like, he wants the physical paper back. Like, I don't. You like? I don't understand that. I'm. I, is it more of like you know? Could it be they bought meth, or they got meth from him and then didn't pay? Maybe or something. I don't know because it just seems weird. It seems like there's a little bit more to the story. Yeah, like we're missing something that's important. I completely agree with that. But even though. They really thought that Mankins was the one who did this. They didn't have anything to indict him on. So because of that, the murder case kind of went on the back burner until science could catch up. Because they didn't have any... Because basically what police had here was all potential DNA evidence, but there was no DNA testing. Right, which is always, it's actually kind of funny because that's how our other case went on Patreon. Right. So, like, they have to pretty much just tag it, bag it, and just wait. And wait for science to catch up. So, over the next four years, Mankins was put in jail off and on for drug charges. But nothing ever, like, solid that would put him away for a long amount of time. So, law enforcement kind of felt like he had gotten away with murder at that point. Yeah. But in 1993, a striation test was completed on samples of the nail found on Joey Johnson's pants and a mold that was taken of Jimmy Mankin's hand in 1989. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's the ridge pattern of a person's nail. So it's believed that the ridge pattern on a person's nail is unique to them, kind of like a nail fingerprint. So that was analyzed several times by several different experts in the field. The conclusion was made that it was a match, but it would be very easy to disprove in court. So it wasn't like 100%. So it took a few years and many, many striation tests. But finally, Jimmy Mankins had been arrested for armed robbery and five counts of capital murder on April 27, 1995. 12 years after the murders had taken place. It had taken the state years to build their case against him, and they finally felt confident with their case. One reason the prosecutors were dragging their feet with this case was because they wanted to wait for the DNA technology to come through. So that's why, like, everything happened two years after his arrest. Now, this is something that's interesting because it had never been done before, but they wanted to test the fingernail found on Joey for mitochondrial DNA. And a fingernail had never been tested for that kind of DNA before. That's interesting. So oh, is this like the first time it's ever yes. it was ever done like that? Yes. Wow. Okay. So the trial against Mankins was scheduled. And all the prosecutors needed to kind of have this slam dunk case was to just prove that the DNA from the fingernail matched Mankins. Because they knew the striation test was kind of shaky and could easily be disproven. They wanted their ace in the hole, and that was proving the fingernail. So right before the trial was supposed to start, the fingernails tested. They finally have the technology to do it. 
But guess what? It's not a match. It's not a match. But you know what, though? That doesn't prove that he didn't do it. That could have been a fingernail from someone else that might have been there that night. But that shook the foundation of their whole case. Their whole case is based on the fact that the striations from the fingernail matched Jimmy Mankins. But now their own science, DNA, is proving that it's not his fingernail. Yeah, no, I know what you're the saying. The whole basis of the case is gone. They, The prosecutor said, if we try to go forward with this and he's proven innocent, then we can never charge him again. So prosecutors made the decision to dismiss the case. Wow. They feared that the evidence used by the defense would convince a jury that he hadn't been at the scene or at least reasonable doubt would be established. So we hear it all the time. He may not be a good person, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a murderer. I mean, that is true, but... But he is going around telling people. And... Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot here. <laughs> yeah. So six months after being charged with those crimes, Mankins... The case was dismissed and he was released from prison. But don't worry, guys. He'll be back in jail four months later on drug charges. Isn't it crazy like how many times people can just get drug charge after drug charge? They go to prison, they get let out, and they're just back in again. Yeah. It's well, crazy. don't forget there is some kind of like family influence here too because his father is a congressman. That is true. I wonder if that uh, actually played a part in his release. I'm sure it did. So prosecutors still felt like Mankins was responsible and they knew that more than one person was there that night. So they're thinking, okay, if the nail doesn't belong to Jimmy Mankins, maybe it belongs to one of his associates. Makes sense. Does. So this is also where time was on their side. Now that they had waited all of those years, not only did they have DNA technology, but they also had interdepartmental communication. CODIS was a massive database of criminal fingerprints and DNA samples that were provided by federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. The prosecutors knew that Mankins and all of his associates had been to jail several times, so they were most likely registered within CODIS. So they decided that they were going to check the DNA of the fingernail into the CODIS system. And they also did the same with the blood samples that they found. Oh, okay. So they're putting everything in every piece of physical DNA evidence that they have from the KFC murders, as this becomes to be, this comes to be known as they put into CODIS. Now they had to wait their turn for this to be tested because even now, I mean, as you can imagine, the backlog started even when, DNA first started becoming a thing because every case that has physical evidence wants to be tested. So they had to wait. And while they were waiting for all of this to go through, the new detectives that were working the KFC murders case are going to meet with the old detectives because at this point, the case is 20 years old. So they kind of go through the files again and the new detectives interview the old detectives and kind of ask them, you know, what was your thought process? What did you find? And it, it's good to have that communication because it doesn't happen often. It's like the basis of true detective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after years of waiting, DNA found at the scene that night was tested against the CODIS database. 
And guess what? What? There was a match. Of course there was. And it was someone the detective spoke to in 1989. Really? Yes, it always is. It was Darnell Hartsfield and his cousin, Romeo Pinkerton. Wait, but I thought their alibi was really good. Well, Pinkerton's was because he was in jail, right? Right, exactly. Well, the detectives, they obviously just went over the files. They were like, wait, Pinkerton and his associates weren't considered for the crime because he was supposed to be in the state pen at the time. So detectives went back to look at his criminal record and, you know, like all the records from the state penitentiary are located in Austin. So they go there, they find it, and they find that there was a paperwork error. Pinkerton had not been released two days before the crime. Pinkerton had not been released two days after the crime. He'd been released two days before the crime on the 21st of September. So Pinkerton must have knew that and yeah. set this up as an amazing alibi. Oh, my God. No, he didn't know. He didn't know that. Wait. He didn't know there was going to be a paperwork error from the prison that gave him his alibi. Yeah, but then why would he have said, oh, well, I was released two days. He didn't say that. The paperwork said that. He said, oh, I was in jail. Oh, so he was just kind of throwing it out there. Yeah. And then the paperwork error just kind of made it all. Confirmed it. Oh, my God. Imagine that, though. You get out of prison two days before, and then you commit murder and robbery. Yeah. That's insane. So... This really hit the old detectives hard. They'd had them. Just weeks after the murder, they had them. That must really hurt, <laughs> you know? Like, you want to solve this murder uh, for all these families that have been affected, and the fact that you can't, and then now you're retired and off the case, yeah. must make you feel a certain way. Oh, 100%. So now, 20 years after the murder, finally with viable suspects, they're given the resources to test the rest of the evidence that had been collected. In order to make sure everything got tested, the de- because what they wanted to do was they kind of wanted to go through everything because there's stuff that they didn't realize could be physical evidence. So the detectives and a forensic analyst are going to go through all of the collected material from 1983. And this is when they noticed something that was not picked up 20 years prior. The bag that had Opie Hughes's clothes was missing a pair of underwear. Now listen, I know everyone has their preference uh, about wearing underwear, not wearing underwear, but the world of 2021 is, or 2022 is very different than 1983. So I think it's safe to assume that a 39-year-old mother of three in 1983 was wearing underwear underneath her polyester pants that were a requirement of her KFC uniform. Yeah. I, like, I don't think she was going commando here. I don't think so either. But they were missing. On top of that, the analyst noticed a slight discoloration in her bra. And the analyst found this curious. So she asked to kind of see the pants and she turned the pants inside out. Now, remember, when Opie was found, she had been wearing her pants. But when she turned the pants inside out, she noticed that in the crotch area of the pants, there was a telltale stain. It looked like it could be semen. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Now, this would explain a lot. Why Opie had been taken away from the other victims. Why she had gravel, grass, and her own hair still grasped in her hands when her body was found. She'd been raped. And, you know, it it explains a lot. And I I think sometime, now this is total speculation. So this is all allegedly, this is all just me thinking out loud here. But 1983 was a different world. This is a small town in Texas. This is a mother of three that most likely some of these police officers knew and detectives. Do you think they didn't look into it because it was kind of like it, they just didn't want, they didn't want it to be true or they didn't want to like demean her in any way or like they just, I don't know, like either they weren't thinking about it because her pants were on or because they wanted to protect her memory. They didn't do the rape kit. They didn't do the, you know, you know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I just, I don't know either. And once again, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going based off what you're saying here. I mean, look, could they have looked at this and said to themselves, well, we're going to overlook this because it, it really doesn't change anything in 1983. If there was a semen sample found, they wouldn't be able to test it anyway. Right. No, no. Um, so like maybe in the, in, in the thought process in 1983, okay, well it's a, it's, it's a robbery and a murder. I don't know what a rape would, how a rape would solve that case in 1983. Well, the only thing they'd be able to determine from a semen sample in 1983 would be if, the person was a secretor, they would be able to find out blood type. But that's it. Right. But what, small town, I don't know. I'm not too sure. But if we're talking about 20 years later, there's a lot of significance there if Correct. she was raped or not and whether or not that is a semen sample. You know I, what I mean? I think it also it explains her situation of where she was. She was found on the other side of the road, right. 120 feet away from everyone else because somebody had taken her there to right. do that to her. Well, the stain was tested and it was determined to be a semen sample. But it was not a match for Romeo Pinkerton or Darnell Hartsfield. Okay. So there had to have been a third male, something law enforcement had suspected all along, present that night as well. Now, just a side note here, the semen sample was also tested against Jimmy Mankins and the third party that was supposed to have been with them that night, Elton Winston, but they were not matches for the semen sample. Okay. They were like, we are not letting Jimmy Mankins get away with this if it was potentially him. <laughs> they had it out for that man. So based on all of the evidence that had been tested and eyewitness testimony, you know, based on like the white van being there, the prosecution laid out most likely the following scenario or timeline for September 23rd. Kimberly Tyler's phone conversation had been overheard by Hartsfeld and Pinkerton. The cousins and an unknown third party waited behind the store until closing time. Their plan was to rob the store. Shortly after 10 p.m., when the restaurant closed, Joey Johnson went to throw out the garbage. This is exactly what you said. Yeah. He went to throw out the garbage, and to do this, he had to go out the back door, 
where the men were waiting. They forced Joey back in at gunpoint and based on the flour, fry baskets and other materials strewn about in the back, it appeared that Joey dropped the garbage and tried to fight with the men. Um, and this, and most likely at this point, the third man was waiting inside the van because the DNA from this third party was never found within the KFC. So maybe he was waiting in the van or he was the getaway driver. We don't know. During this fight, Pinkerton must have been cut because his blood is found in drips all around the back entryway of the restaurant. Then they got control of Joey and forced him to the front of the store where the other four victims most likely were. The exact situation is not known, but Mary Tyler was hit in the mouth with the butt of a gun and her head slammed into the wall next to her. This caused her to bleed out of her mouth and because it formed a huge pool of blood beneath her. This must have also cut Darnell Hartsfield when he was holding the gun because his blood was also found in that area. Pinkerton and Hartsfield's blood and fingerprints had been found on a napkin and box that had been beneath the register. They then asked where the rest of the money was, and both men and Mary walked to the back office where cash and petty cash were being held. And that's why Mary's blood, their blood was all over the floor, like walking to the office. But Mary's blood was strewn across the files because she was reaching in to get the rest of the money. Finally, all five victims were brought into the van. They're thinking that during the 14 mile ride, no one panicked or fought because they were also, um, they were just compliant because they thought they were going to be let go. So maybe they were telling them, We'll just let you go. We're just going to drive you somewhere. Right. I mean, yeah. You'd think that five people would try to get out of a van if they thought that was going to happen to them. Plus, it it also makes it easier to get away from a robbery. So they're probably thinking, oh, they're just holding us so they can get away and let us out at the next. Right, because it would take us far to find a phone. Right. Once they pull into the oil lease field, we don't know the order of events in which things happened. When they were shot, when Opie was taken away and sexually assaulted. All we know is five lives were taken that night in a senseless act of violence, and five families were destroyed. Both men were indicted for five counts of capital murder each. Romeo Pinkerton was afraid he was going to receive the death penalty, so he confessed so he could receive a lesser charge. In September of 2008, Pinkerton, who had been 24 during the murders, was sentenced to five concurrent life sentences as part of a plea deal, meaning he was serving all five at once. Okay. He was up for parole in 2014, but was denied. In 2019, he was denied again, and he'll be up for parole again in 2023. The reason the board gave for his denial was his criminal record, Not only did he have a long rap sheet before the massacre on September 23rd, but he was also arrested for burglary after the murders. And the second reason was the heinous nature of the offenses committed. 
So he didn't have remorse for what he did because he continued to do robberies and commit crimes after these murders took place, is what they're saying. Exactly. And it was so bad. I mean, he's a, he's a repeat offender. I mean, if he was to get out, I mean, what's the likelihood? I mean, there's a very big likelihood that he'll do it again. Yeah. Darnell Hartsfield, the cousin of Pinkerton, chose his luck with the trial, which did not go his way. He was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. Both men refused to give up the name of the third party who was there that night, the man that raped and killed Opie Hughes, to the dismay of her family. In an interview given after sentencing, Opie's husband said he's waiting for the day that he and his girls and his wife will get justice. And that's so hard because the other four families kind of did get their answers, but the Hughes family didn't. No, they didn't. Um, It is sad. And it's there. They know the identity of the third person, but they won't give it. That's pretty crazy. And, you know, Jack Hughes says in interviews, he's like, I think they're not saying the name of the third party because it's a family member. I would I would think so. Because they're cousins. They're cousins. Yeah. Um, So, of course, the Hughes family and the other families as well advocate for further DNA testing. And I think they should be given that. Yeah. The 100 percent. Because (sighs) you know what? That's actually a really good point. Okay. If they were to do additional testing, if they're cousins, they have similar DNA. Right, but it wasn't determined yet. They... I, no, I know that. But if it it truly is that third person, a family member, it'll show up in the DNA comparison between the two cousins yeah. and You're the right. third person. Mm-hmm. And that should 100% be done because in my eyes, this isn't done yet. You did not get justice for everyone involved in this heinous murder and robbery this is insane the way that they were killed and how it happened and what took place horrible they should test it it doesn't it'll go a very long way to that family if they even just tried to do it i completely agree and even if nothing was to be made of it and they got nowhere at least they could tell the family hey look we tried with the evidence collected we tried to do a test to match we can't find anything at least it's an attempt. Yeah. No, an I, additional I agree. attempt. So I don't know. I'm a little upset about that, but it is what it is, I guess, for now. I, I'm also, it's just sad because 20 years passed where the Hughes family was like coming to terms, I guess. I mean, you can never come to terms if your mother is murdered or your wife is murdered. But like, okay, this is what happened to Opie. And then, oh, 20 years later, they find out, no, she was also sexually assaulted. And then they find out, okay, everyone else, we know what happened to them. It's horrible. And I don't want to take away from that. But now it's like, well, now you don't know who not only killed her, but made her last few minutes on this earth painful and horrible. Yeah. And to elaborate on that, right? You know, yes. And we're not taking away from those families, all those other families. But you know what? That to to find out what happened to your family member, it can start the healing and, you know, starts the healing process of what they have to live with. Right. Right. They'll never get over it, but it starts the healing process. Opie's family, there is no healing process there. I mean, maybe they, they're able to manage and they get by, but it was, you know, it starts the process. So for them to not get the same thing as everyone else, because they won't test evidence, it's just kind of, 
It's really sad. Yeah, it's. I, I don't know. Oh, that's a heavy one. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Crazy. It is. Okay. Well, before we go, we do want to thank our new supporters on Patreon, our new patrons. We appreciate you guys so much. So we just want to say thank you. First, we want to thank our new yearly supporters. You guys are signing up for a year of fun. We super appreciate that. Thank you, guys. That's Sarah and Melissa Escott. Then we have our new patrons, Liz Sparks, Hildy, Angela May, Vanessa Morgana Peterson, Sarah L. Moss, Michael Ray, Julia Moscovina, Leah Punturi, and Tracy Mayer. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate all that you're doing. We hope you're enjoying all those episodes. And to everyone else, we are so happy we got to be with you three weeks in a row. Yeah, this is pretty awesome. very fun. (laughs) But we will see you in two weeks. Bye, guys. Take care, guys.